0: By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much, and enjoy the program. Uh,
1: and my introduction will maybe just give you a little bit of sense of who I am and the work I do. So my name is Ilana Kaufman. I work out of Berkeley, California. And um, I am the director of a national initiative called the Jews of Color Field Building Initiative. And so I run the nation's only philanthropic fund focused on the intersection of racial justice, uh, Jewish community building, and Jews of Color. And so my fund invests in—and that's not my money. This is Jewish community money. Um, I am a steward of a fund. Um, But we invest in things like uh, leadership and fellowships and capacity building and executive coaching and strategic planning and all of the things that will help build out the infrastructure for the community and for our Jewish community leaders who also are people of color. Um, I am one of the nation's uh, researchers on behalf of the community. And so I am charged literally with conducting the next meta study on demographics for Jews of color. And so when people ask how many Jews of color are there or Ilana, maybe you're just a unicorn and there's just one of you. (laughs) Um, My job is to take right now, which is 2002, 2003 data um, and then the brandeis Steinheart Team has a 2013 study, and my job is to, I've just commissioned the next study, uh, which will come out of a different university, um, and that'll be delivered in April. And so I'll have that, for, and it's just for the community, like it's just for everyone. Um, and then the last thing I do is I work at the network level usually, and so I, I, I sometimes get great invitations like this where I get to be with people, um, and not just like boards, or just like senior leadership of a foundation. But I spend a lot of time at the network level and I work with leaders of influence with the idea to shift paradigms around uh, Jewish community identity and racial inclusivity and to kind of push the physics with the idea that when people in power make shifts, then the community around them, um, there are ripple effects in that way. Um, and I just wanna end by saying that I have been the great beneficiary, I have some hindsight now of a really wonderful investments from the Jewish community in leadership. And so I would just want to like echo any time any one of you think about where our next leaders are coming from, um, grooming Jewish communal leaders wherever we are, uh, the benefits of having fellowships, professional development. I was raised in a Reform community. And so my big, one of my big hills to climb was learning Torah. Um, and so <laughs> the irony of like, spending all this time in religious school and not learning any Torah. Um, And so the last few years, that's been one of my big stretches, is is spending a lot of time with Torah and uh, Talmud in particular. Um, I'm going to do a talk, and then we can talk about anything you want that's either triggered from my introduction or for what I'm going to share. And the themes that I wrote this piece for you all around are around Jews, peoplehood, and and these concepts of justice, and sort of how we all find our way in that. Um, I want to thank you all for coming out, first of all, and then... Just sort of start off with some context for all of us. Um, We spend a lot of time in the Jewish community talking about justice, and we spend a lot of time in the Jewish community engaging in acts of justice, uh, because that is the story of our people, or that's the story we tell ourselves of our people. Um, We've worked very hard to be upwardly mobile in the United States, um, and we have some evidence of enjoying quite a bit of success. And we see ourselves, like our identity is often, sometimes is rooted in Torah, but often sometimes it's rooted in values as um, maybe a placeholder for Torah, as an expression of Torah, as a way many people in our community do Jewish. And We were just talking about uh, civil rights, community relations. We have this very long history of community relations as a Jewish people. Um, And right now, I think some of us would wonder if we are in strong relationships with communities of color, especially as we think about themes of anti-Semitism. And I think we have these conversations and questions about our relationships with people of color, both inside and outside of the Jewish community. Uh, Many US Jews are broken by what's been happening here in the United States post-2016 Charlottesville um, and the really, really very clear wave of anti-Semitic violence in this country. Um, As Jews, we have been targeted, and those targets, our experience of being targeted is despite our success as Jews in the United States, and that's something for us to think about. Um, This is a very complex, confusing, and I would say curious time for Jews in the United States. 40% of the world's Jews are here. And to to see our next generation of Jews through, I would suggest that we have an opportunity to be better grounded And who we are as Jewish people. Uh, We need to understand ourselves as a diverse United States Jewish community, informed by our values of mobilizing people, engaging, and acting. Um, And I think it's fair to say that if you look at the lenses of systematic injustice in this country, statistics will tell us that many of our lives are vulnerable as Jewish people, as women, as LGBTQ community, as Jewish people of color, And we learned in Charlottesville, and we learned in Pittsburgh that some people feel like our lives as Jews don't matter. And we should be alarmed, and we should also be galvanized to do something about it. The United States, um, we have a historical historical narrative that threads our history through Columbus discovering America, and I might put discovering in air quotes. Uh, The first documented case of a Jew to reach our shores was uh, Joachim Chaim Gaums and he was part of Sir Walter Raleigh's expedition that came in 1585. Next came the settling of German Jews to this country who left Germany because of persecution, restrictive laws, economic despair, and German Jews began to arrive in the United States around the 1840s. And then came Eastern European Jews, much like my grandparents, who were forced out of Europe by overpopulation, legislation designed to oppress and poverty. Coming to the United States seemed enticing at the time, given the prospect of financial, social advancement, and safety, which is so, so important for us as Jewish people. Eastern European Jews, like my grandmother Dora and my grandfather Isidore, after whom I am named, began to immigrate to the United States in large numbers around the 1880s. And we love this part of our story, right? Like the part of the story where we left Europe from the pogroms and terror and all these things that were real and important, and then we came here and then we just, Life became better, and we helped black people, and here we are. That's the, that's the very abridged version of the story. We as Jews know this experience of being pushed out. We know the experience of being poor. We know the experience of being restricted from employment and housing opportunities, college opportunities, professional opportunities. We as a Jewish people in the United States have a history of our opportunities being limited, and that is very, very real. This part of our story is not untrue. However... We also love this container in which the story exists. Like if there was a book jacket, it would be covered with sepia tone images of a German man in a fine suit with a hat next to his wife in a high collar dress. There'd be a black and white photo of a girl, maybe 11 working in a garment factory in New York City, adjacent to a picture of a black bearded man with a push cart on Orchard Street making his way down. And there would be a picture of a beautiful towering late 1880s synagogue somewhere in the US that looks much more like an Episcopal church then a synagogue, and we know that part of our history. And then there's a picture of like maybe two young, brave IDF soldiers, neither is older than 21, and one would be a woman. And then there might be a picture of a rabbi on this book of our life. Uh, they'd be, he'd be in front of his congregation. That photo would probably be in color. And he might have a billowy robe, and I'm sure that all of his congregation schoolgoers are likely white in that version of our story. But that's not the whole story, the thing is. Something like 20% of US Jews are racially and ethnically diverse. Uh, You probably know from the Pew study that most non-Orthodox Jews will marry folks who are not Jewish here in the United States. And because we have the luxury of living in the United States, more and more as we make our way to 2042 when half of the US will be people of color, our Jewish community, our family, our friends, our partners are people of color. And that means our babies are people of color. And that means the Jewish community over time is increasingly becoming more diverse in the United States. So what does it mean as a community that we perpetuate what some might call an inauthentic narrative about who we are and who we might be? And what does it mean that we have a big, diverse Jewish community out there right here in this room? And for whatever reason, we cannot seem to attract people who are Jewish inside of our synagogues to daven, inside our community relations to participate, inside of our day schools and our JCCs to engage. Like what's going on in there? And what's going on when we as a Jewish people, when we think about our struggles and we think about this question of racism possibly or inclusion possibly, how do we manage and hold all of that coupled with the fact that we are an engaged, committed, appropriately at times outraged people um, who are also scared, who are also thinking about white nationalism in this country? How do we hold all of these parts of our identity and stay whole as Kalel Yisrael, as the Jewish people? Like those are the core questions. And this matters because it's about us, right? It's about our Jewish community. No one's going to steward this community but the people in this room. Nobody is going to make space for our children but us. No one's going to inspire our children to want to learn Torah if we don't feel inspired ourselves. And Torah in this context is a metaphor for actual text and who we are and what we do and everything about us as a Jewish people. This is important because one, we want to feel seen and we want to feel known. We want to have a strong, integrated sense of identity. Every one of us wants to feel like we're in connection with each other and like we matter to somebody. Two, we want to feel like we're connected to something bigger, like we are part of the Jewish people, like Kalal Yisrael, and that we belong to a community, and that our community is looking for us. Our community is wanting us to be home. And three, this is important because we can contribute something to make things better than they are right now. Rabbi Shmuley asked me earlier today, like, what can we do to respond to racism in the United States? And I'm like, as a Jewish people, like as everybody inside the Jewish community, he's like, everything. You know him better than I do. I didn't realize what kind of question that was. But the question is like, we have work to do, but we don't have work to do in isolation. We have work to do in community because we are part of a larger community, both internally a multiracial Jewish community, and then this community, this tiny 2% of the United States, is part of this other 98%. And the thing that bonds us together as Jews with other people, and I'm gonna say this, and I don't mean to be controversial, like I'm a a proud, proud Zionist, Israel is not what keeps U.S. Jews (laughs) engaged in Jewish identity and safe as Jews in the United States. If we're lucky, that would be our constitution. And the Constitution, this idea that we have some sort of connective tissue between each one of us to hold up and maintain our rights, that's what we have in common with everyone who is different than us and everyone who is the same as us. That's what makes us neighbors. That's what makes us citizens. So a couple of years ago, um, so as I mentioned, I'm named after my grandfather, Isidore Kaufman. He is I, Kaufman. I am I, Kaufman. Um, And I am also the keeper of his high holiday books from the 1930s. Um, I was bat mitzvahed at a huge synagogue in San Francisco, California. At age 16, I went to Israel, like all the other kids who go to Israel. Um, and here I am in this like, amazing leadership role in the Jewish community. And despite all of these indicators of engagement and success, it has taken me some real time to feel like I have place. I have a location inside the Jewish community. And it's funny because like my story, I didn't realize I wasn't like other Jewish families until I left San Francisco (laughs) and met other Jewish families who didn't realize I was like every other Jewish family. And it's like that bit of both opportunity and weirdness and dynamism that makes this conversation so important. We should be expecting my family and we should be expecting your family and your family and your family So that we're not surprised when we come to the front door. A couple of years ago um, as I started to feel more confident as a communal Jew, I started to dip my toe into like traditional formal community activities and across my desk came an invitation from um, Jewish Family Community Services to deliver Rosh Hashanah grocery bags to the homebound during the high holidays. I'm a Taurus And so that practical, can-do activity really appealed to me. I could put it in my schedule. There were only five stops, and I could get home before Shabbat. So two years ago, I took my daughter, Noah, and it was funny because I had this moment when I was preparing to go do the deliveries where I wondered if it would be confusing for the Jews on the other side of the door that there'd be two black people standing there. And I was trying to figure out how to interact if it became weird that, my daughter and I showed up and we were like Shinatoba. Right? So that was the first issue that popped up for me and in some ways worry that popped up for me that might not pop up for others. And then I had this kind of like, I don't know, bittersweet moment where in some ways I relied on their racism to assume that we were like service people and then it would be less confusing. And it would be less awkward So then last year, I decided, okay, that's weird to put myself in that situation. And so I brought a white colleague with me, like a white Jewish female colleague who I worked with, and I said, like, come deliver bags, and she thought this was great. And so I got myself all cleaned up. Um, I changed my shirt that day because I have tattoos, and I have a practice in my professional world where I don't show them, particularly around elders, in case I trigger something, and that's just very real. Um, I had like my professional name tag on from the Jewish Community Relations Council at the time. Like you can't get kind of more square than that. And I went about my business to deliver grocery bags. On my delivery route there was a man whose name I did not immediately recognize and whom I had not yet met in person. And when I went to deliver his groceries, power wheelchair bound, he asked me to come up to his cabinets and put his things away. Put the perishables in the fridge, Happily, I complied. Put the candles on the upper left corner of the shelf where he could reach them for Shabbat, no problem. But then what was weird was he was having a conversation only with my white friend and not with me. And that made me feel sad and a little bit hurt. I mean, then again, it was my idea to go out and do this. And the irony is he absolutely just could not see me he could not see the person of color in the space as like another member of the community with whom he should be engaging. And it was funny because I spend all of this time, especially like when I'm on the phone in my work settings and I put on my, my very my educated voice, um, where people don't imagine Alana Kaufman looks like me. And so even though I was standing right there in front of him, in his mind's eye, the man in the motorized chair couldn't recognize me as one of his. And the story of our lives as Jews is that's bound in that cover that I described in the motorized chairman's version of our Sefer Hayim, our book of life, there are no pages with Jews of color. And stories like mine that illustrate that I am part of his community. It is really Really important that we create space to see people for who they are. And to see one as they see themselves, and to invite that expression of our person. To do this, we need to one have the ability to reflexively consider da mi omed, know before whom you stand. And while sure we most often see that particular phrase in synagogues above the ark as a gentle admonition to enter synagogues and prayer with some respect and some humility, I would suggest that since there is no evidence in Jewish texts that we have any idea what God really looks like, and we carry a core belief that B'Tselem Elohim, all people are made in the divine image, I would suggest knowing before whom we stand is really a reminder to any one of us in our form that we may be unfamiliar or unknown to each other. And that we should be careful because we may not recognize God before us. It could be in any one of you. And this is especially important for us as U.S. Jews because we have one, a racially diverse population who is only becoming more hued. right now the data suggests somewhere between 11% and 34% of our community are people of color. If you think about by 2042, half the country will be people of color. And if you think that 71% of non-Orthodox Jews marry non-Jews, if you mash that all up, makes people hued and brown and that will be our community in the most lovely way. So our charge as U.S. Jews is to understand what our own history is and what our experiences are and what our context is here in the United States. We arrived to this country pushed and pulled and sometimes hunted, and while European in background, we felt different from those other kind of white people, and I understand that. We knew ourselves to be hardworking, smart, resilient, We understood ourselves as values-driven engagers who recognize injustice whenever we see it. We saw ourselves as more like those being marginalized than the marginalizers. That's who we've been as Jewish people. We felt internal motivation and spiritual propulsion towards civil rights. But something has happened along the way from the 1940s, 50s, 60s to the 2000s. The United States codified into its systems of housing and economic advancement Jews from Europe shattering this myth that we only pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. Things like the GI Bill, redlining, certainly have helped white Jews elevate and ascend in this country. And it's important to know that so that when we share our stories, we can be in community together, without judgment, without conflict, just with context, and context matters. And so as Jews, we have to look beyond some of these traditional trappings of our narrative. We have to look beyond some of these traditional expressions of our history. We have to look beyond who's inside of our buildings because if we're lucky on a good day, like 20 or 30% of the Jewish community is engaged in a traditional shul-going, JCC-going, day school-going kind of way, so that means everybody else is outside somewhere, but they're still part of this whole community. So we... And you all know this, are people of the diaspora built in us as some sense of motion and movement. Um, We are people who know how to stand on the edge and see things from different vantage points and to take in and consider the perspective and experiences of others. We are especially capable of this ability to see beyond ourselves because we move from location to location to location and we as a Jewish people have been designed to shift our shapes and to adapt and when we need to, to become new. Even sometimes to the point when we are not immediately recognizable to ourselves. To ensure we never lose connection, we have been given the capacity for what Edmund Burke calls moral imagination. The ability to transcend our own personal experience and embrace the dignity of others. To transcend our own personal experience and embrace the dignity of others. And as Jews in the United States become more racially diverse, moral imagination is going to be one of our required tools to ensure that we can stand in others' shoes so that we create space for the possibility that we are in fact, in many ways, the same even when we're very different. As U.S. Jews, we're just 2.2% of the population and we must focus on bringing in, embracing, building, and perpetuating our communities. And for us as Jews, we seem fixated on this idea of centralizing a particular Jewish identity, which often excludes most forms of diversity of all kinds. And we do this in the name of perpetuating the Jewish community. If we can just get two Jewish people to marry each other and have Jewish babies. If we can just get people to move away from interfaith relationships. If we can just get people to sign up for Jewish day schools or the JCC. But none of that is going to sustain the Jewish people in the United States. Because in spite of all of that, we're still thriving. In spite of the push toward these very traditional expressions of of Jewish life that haven't all happened in the US, we are still thriving. So we have to act and we have to engage. And for those of us with unearned power or privilege or conditional power and privilege, we must use it for good and redistribute all of this abundance that we have gathered in our community so that as a minimum standard, each one of us and our neighbors can live in dignity and as citizens and in ways that reflect our understanding of humanity. I want to encourage you all to think about justice, and I'm gonna share just a couple of ideas and tools. How do we get there, and what are our strategies and our approaches? So we have to be learned in things like diversity, inclusion, equity, and justice. These ideas that we have people who are different in our community, that we need to bring people in in ways that let them be whole, that we allow people to understand that in some ways our experiences are different and for those who have some unearned power and privilege we may have to redistribute that to those who don't and we have to grapple with what that means inside of the Jewish community and what that means in the United States and if we can do it inside the Jewish community as a multiracial Jewish community there are learnings we can amplify out to our partners out there. We also have to talk about justice. What ensures that we hold ourselves accountable to a standard of equity for everybody. How do we do that and what are our tools as Jews? I want you to think about embracing ideas like intersectionality, the idea that each one of us comes with multiple identities, they are not competing, they are not in conflict, they are harmonious inside each one of us and if we can show up whole as ourselves, as men and women, as people who are non-binary, as people who are LGBTQ, as people who are people of color, if you have a disability or a different ability, whatever it is, but if we can bring our whole selves into our Jewish community, then our whole selves can be inspired by and benefit from the Jewish community. We need to know U.S. history and U.S. social science. And it's interesting, I was working with a group of Jewish funders and they had, every one of them had gone to Brandeis for undergrad. Every single one of them had gone to Brandeis. And we were talking about U.S. history, and I said, you know, do you know about this, or do you know about that? And they said, where did you learn this? I said, oh, I had to go to like a required multicultural history class. And they're like, oh, we didn't have that at Brandeis. And so there's this question of helping our Jewish communal entities expand themselves a little bit into the larger context to appreciate like fine Jewish universities are developing fine Jewish scholars who live a fine United States. And that, that United States is multiracial. It's not complicated, but what gets in the way of our community doing this work in a more um, diverse way? Um, So knowing all of our history, and then also thinking about the role of whiteness in the Jewish community. When Jews came to the United States, Jews were not white. Categorically, Jews who came from Eastern Europe were not white. And then over time, in the 1960s, uh, Karen Brodkin, author Karen Brodkin, she would point to the GI Bill But at some point, the traditional trappings of what elevated people in the United States, Jews had access to. And then somewhere in that time, it's discussed that Jews became white or moved into whiteness with those opportunities and those privileges. And we can talk more about that later if you want. But to just grapple with that and think about that, and what does that mean? And what does it also mean for Jews to have whiteness or an experience of whiteness in a context where white nationalism is anti-Semitic? right? Like, we need to talk about what all that means and where our allies are. And then the last thing I want to say, and like Rabbi Shmuley, you know, he's not here, but we have to take risks as leaders, and we have to model leadership, and we have to model the complicated conversations in a way where we're not in conflict, in a way where we're held tightly in community. We're in a way where we have affection and respect for one another, because that's how people come together. And so I want to end with this. Um, When I first mentioned or started the story, I talked about this grocery delivery activity that I did on Rosh Hashanah. And I explained that I like rang the doorbells, I changed my shirt, I did all of the things to go be like a pristine Jewish community leader doing like a proper mitzvah. And then I mentioned that there was this name on the delivery route of this gentleman in the power wheelchair. I told you that I placed his produce and his perishables in his fridge I put his Shabbos candles on the upper left part of his cabinet, and I worked silently while this gentleman, Mr. Markowitz, talked with my friend. So my friend and I are in Mr. Markowitz's apartment, and Mr. Markowitz is talking to my friend. And at some point, she looks up to Mr. Markowitz and she says, Mr. Markowitz, actually, that's Ilana. And Mr. Markowitz spins around in his wheelchair. And he motors over in my direction, and he rolls right up to me close, he has these very, very thick glasses on, (laughs) and he says to me, I know an Ilana. And his tone becomes soft, and he looks a little, not like confused, like he doesn't know what's going on, confused because he's making sense of something in real time. So Mr. Markowitz goes on, he says to me, Ilana, the one I know, She works for a Jewish organization. And my friend, Sarah says, yeah, Ilana works for a Jewish organization. And then I softly ask Mr. Markowitz, does that Ilana work for the JCRC, the Jewish Community Relations Council? And he said, yes. And then my friend says, Mr. Markowitz, that's Ilana Kaufman, not me. So Mr. Markowitz slowly rolls closer to me, if that's even possible at that point. And he stares over his glasses and he looks right at me. And with the most sincerely apologetic eyes, he reaches out his hand and he takes mine in silence. And he holds my hand and then he tells me all of the ways that he has valued my work for him at the JCRC over the last year. Because Mr. Markowitz is an observant Orthodox Jew. He's wheelchair bound. And they kept making appointments for his mobile transportation on Shabbat and the high holidays at that time. And so we had been on the phone for about a year and I had been on the other side of that phone advocating for him as an Orthodox Jew. And he said to me that what I had done for him over the last year made all of the difference, both for him as someone who's disabled and for somebody who is observant. And so was, you know, next to a white person, Mr. Markowitz couldn't see me. He could not recognize me as part of his community. He couldn't fathom the form that Ilana Kaufman from the Jewish Community Relations Council might come. And once he was invited to engage, to move into a space of moral imagination, he not only knew who I was, but he knew me and what I had done for him, and he also knew he had wounded me a little bit. So Mr. Markowitz was still holding my hand and he was squeezing it a little long and a little tight and it was making me a little uncomfortable, but I know he just wanted to make sure that he saw me and that I knew that he saw me and I did. And I also know that anytime now Mr. Markowitz picks up the phone and calls somebody in the Jewish community, he'll know that it's possible that in a lot of Kauffman might look like me. And that makes all of the difference in everything that we do in this community. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz.
0: I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmadrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning.
1: I'm going to end with this. So over the summer, my daughter, Noah, attended a Jewish day camp, a Jewish summer camp. She does this every year. And I went to go pick her up. And I saw her and my daughter is brown and she has this big hair and she had it tucked back in a ponytail. And I went to pick her up and there was my Noah and she was with a little tiny brown, tiny camper, teeny camper from some other, some other, is is how they grouped them. And so I thought it was darling, right? Like I had never had an experience in my life where I was at religious school or Jewish summer camp or that kind of space and there was another little brown person there, right? I was one of the only ones for so long. So we're leaving summer camp and I hear my Noah say, bye Noah. And I look and all I see is like an older African-American man. So I'm assuming his name is Noah with an H and she's hollering at him across the parking lot saying goodbye to him. And then out from behind the car comes that tiny little ponytailed girl. And my daughter says to me, Ima, that's tiny Noah. And I thought to myself, I spent all of this time in my Jewish life wishing there was like a mini-me, right? Or like wishing I could go somewhere like an amusement park and find a license plate with Ilana on it. You know how you can always get stickers with your names or keychains with your names and they never had Ilana. And there was my daughter having a little mini image of herself right there in a very traditional Jewish context, summer camp. And we all deserve that experience. Everybody, if you want to be a rabbi, if you want to be a clergy person, if you want to be an educator, if you want to be a Jewish artist, if you want to be a scholar, you should be able to look into that space and see a reflection of yourself. And that's what I hope for for everybody. We get to print this next edition of our book of life. Like we're literally in the process of writing it as we work together right now. And I understand, I appreciate that I'm part of this bridge generation Uh, There's an author, Danzy Senna, and she calls us the new people, the mulatto millennium. Um, But we are the bridges on the way to the next version of ourselves, and I get that. Our community is a story of not just me or you or them or us, but it's about who's coming next and how far we can see in the future to be able to prepare for them. I need you to do this. We need to be in community to do this, and we need each other to make these very intentional, specific, action-oriented choices. Dr. King talked about a beloved country and the importance of set aside not only our spiritual wealth for this, but that it's gonna make a change. We're gonna have to change our behaviors. We're gonna have to change how we engage in the world, and that's the invitation, to figure out how we can change to benefit everybody. Seeing people for who they are and how they want to be seen, Honoring that we are precious and possibly divine and committing to an intentional action-oriented engagement around justice is the work that we have been doing for 5,000 years and that we're destined to do. I want to move forward. I want our community to be intact. And the idea is this, like we are not engaging in justice or engaging in this work, not only because it's about our values, but this engagement is what perpetuates the Jewish people. We're like kinetic energy. And we have to be in it to create it to send it out. And that's the invitation around justice. So with that, I'll stop talking. And I thank you. And we can talk about anything you want around these questions of justice, Jewish community, identity, racism, Jews of color. I'm at your service. So thank you. Yes.
2: I think when you were talking about anti-Semitism, you said we were targeted despite our success.
1: Yes. I think I wrote that down correctly. You did. I've often
2: thought quite the opposite. Say more. We are targeted uh, because of our success.
1: Mm. So here's the, here's, the, here I like it. But here's like, here's where I'm going to join you in this discussion. So after Charlottesville, my rabbi, I was in the office, and he says to me, Alana, like the congregants are calling and they're freaking out right, like, they're scared, they're worried, this is real, and I have to tell you, like, everything changed for me after Charlottesville, like, I found it to be a very traumatic experience for the, for our country, um, and for what was happening for all of us, and so Rabbi Khan is talking with me, and he says, like, people are asking, should we take down our mezuzot, like, should we not wear our kippot, whatever, and I was just like, Rabbi Khan. and he looked at me, says, Oh, like, this is what people of color are dealing with all of the time. <laughs> Should we take off our skin? Should we not have curly hair? Like, what are the options here? And so, <laughs> I offer that story just to say this. I think one of the challenges of our success is it has, it has insulated the Jewish community in a way that's left the Jewish community feeling a little exceptional. Like, all of these terrors around marginalization, racism, um, LGBTQ hate that had been expressed in this country. We had not seen the same gravity of expressions of hate until around 2016. And part of that, my, is, you know, from my perspective, is because of our success we've been a little insulated. And the further we've gotten away from like, traditional trappings of Jewish identity, the more assimilated we've become. And I want to like, thumbtack, assimilation has been a resistance activity So I don't want, there's no criticism around assimilation. But with assimilation has come the ability to kind of fade into the the background. And there's some comfort with the ability to fade into the background. And that's what I was referring to, and we no longer have that comfort of fading into the background. Um, We are no longer exceptional among other communities who are marginalized or targeted. Uh, Jews, anti-Semitism, white nationalism is our, our terror too. Now and, it was, and I think we've just been reminded that in recent years. That's a great question. Yes,
3: please.
4: You also mentioned earlier, you had maybe a little throwaway phrase about Jews coming to the uh, United States from Europe, helping black people, and then blah, blah, And mm-hmm. then you went on
1: like- Right, right, right. I skipped the whole civil rights movement. Right,
4: and, yeah, and then, yeah, so, you know, so uh, Heschel, you know, the March 5th came. Yes. And what has happened in the last? <laughs> because um, I, <coughs> I sense that uh, whatever bond or sense of community uh, maybe that the non-Jewish black community had with the Jewish community maybe closer to the middle of the last century has deteriorated.
1: I love this conversation. And so I'm gonna go a little bit down the rabbit hole, but pull me back out. Um, So for those of you who like history books, I wanna encourage you all to read Black Power, Jewish Politics by Mark Dollinger. Black Power, Jewish Politics by Mark Dollinger. It just came out like six months ago. Um, and it basically like, gives us a different perspective on the black-Jewish relationship partnership of the 1960s. And so, it, you know, yes, Jewish community helped found the NAACP, helped, you know, found bunches and bunches of schools in the South, uh, 500 schools in the South, for example. I mean, all of these are very real. And it wasn't as if doing these acts of justice, doing these acts of tikkun, were were, um, transactional and one-sided. There was a lot of complication around black liberation ideology and how the JCRCs, and I'm a former staffer, the Anti-Defamation League, reacted to some black power movements. The Jewish community had opportunities to elevate the black community and it chose not to. And there were opportunities to bring the black community along with Jewish community around opportunities for success and the Jewish community opted not to. Um, And so it was more complicated than this beautiful image of Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel and Dr. Martin Luther King on on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. It's just more complicated than that. And I think if we understood not only some of the dynamics around that, but also like in this book, part of the thesis is it was the black power movement that actually helped inspire Jewish power in this country. And much of our Jewish power movements have been modeled after black power movement. Um, and Mark Dollinger, just, just to like put, a, put his bona fides out there, he's the head of Jewish studies at San Francisco State University and holds a Richard Erden role Goldman chair of Jewish studies there. And so he's a Jewish studies historian. And so it's, you know, it's not a throwaway, it's that, we have not looked critically at the black Jewish relationship of the 1960s and how it's informed and influenced what's going on right now. I think a number of my Jewish colleagues will tell me, like, don't, doesn't the black community understand the history and where, why, are, why, are, why is the black African American community not, as, uh, uh, not participating as allies at this point? Um, you know, the Forward Today just published a very, very pointed piece about Louis Farrakhan. Um, and sort of like we need to call out anti-Semitism when we see it. Absolutely, let's call out Farrakhan. But it's not just like Black people helped. I mean, Jewish people helped Black people, and it made it all better. The last thing, I love, the last piece I'll say on that is, if we look at the delta between indicators of success between African Americans now and Jewish Americans now, we have to wonder if there was so much systematic, policy-based, practice-based, institutional-based support for African Americans and civil rights in the 1960s, why are those institutions of success not in place for African Americans now? I'm not blaming Jewish Americans on that. I'm saying there were opportunities to partner and elevate both communities, and it didn't happen that way. And the Jewish community had a role in that. There was a time where the Jewish community was very worried about black nationalism and was it a a veiled front for anti-Semitism from the Nation of Islam, for example, in the 1960s. So it was just very complicated, and I think it's important to have that conversation. How much
4: of it do you think is the politics around Israel and maybe blacks identifying with oppressed Palestinians?
1: Um, I love that question, and here's why. So um, I I don't know how many people in the room are familiar with the Black Lives Matter movement and the Movement for Black Lives. they are two different movements. The Black Lives Matter movement can roll up into the Movement for Black Lives. So a platform was published about three years ago by the Movement for Black Lives. It was like their liberation platform, okay? It was 47,000 words, and it was like a manifesto of black freedom and liberation around the world. And it was really looking at like white supremacy on a global perspective, talking about the United States. I'm gonna get to your question, yeah. um, There were like three sentences of in these 47,000 words that call Israel an apartheid state, um, and grouped it with other kind of nation states of terror, is how I would I would discuss it. And um, the Jewish community had a very strong community I mean, reaction. Okay, so but, I'm coming yeah, around.
4: Yeah. So yeah. yeah. It was like three sentences. Yes. In this long thing, yes. And because of that, um, the Jewish institutional communities pretty much dismissed it.
1: Perfect. Exactly. And so we're so at some community stepped up and said, we are with you,
3: our friends.
1: Right. Well, and there was also there was literally a moment a moment when there was tear gas in Ferguson where Palestinians were watching it happening and they were tweeting to Ferguson about how to deal with the tear gas. And so that's where the from Palestine to Ferguson came from was literally there was a day where this was happening and they were getting advice from Palestinians about how to respond to the tear gas. That is all to say, in response, 50 community leaders were brought together at the Auburn Seminary for Movement for Black Lives, Black Lives Matter, and the Jewish community. And it was like Rabbi Rick Jacobs from the URJ, um, Federation execs, I mean like very, very traditional roles. And I was at the privilege of being there. I invited the head of the middle middle middle-sized. there are 110 federations on the continent. And there's about like 30 or 40 that are middle-sized federations, and I invited the head of middle-sized federations to join me as my colleague. So we're there, and he's a, a white rabbi who runs a federation, and there's a panel of Jews of color talking about how they view white supremacy on a global level. And the rabbi turned to me, and he said, Ilana, I think I get it. He said, I understood that people of color often view Palestinians as ethnic peoples, But I did not understand that many people of color view Palestinians as people of color. And therefore, if you're fighting against white supremacy domestically, if you're committed to a global fight against white supremacy, then that fight extends into Palestine and it shifts the paradigm about how we're thinking about the conflict. And so I think that it's right to wonder to what extent do communities of color view what's going on in Palestine and Israel and Israel and Palestine as an issue of racism some would question whether it's not, whether or not it qualifies technically as apartheid at this point. Um, and so, yes, like there's a, and, you know, Color Lines magazine that comes out of Race Forward, which is a national racial justice movement, they had a whole cover story on liberating Palestine from kind of a black domestic liberation ideology. And so I think the meta is, and then I'm coming to you, I think the meta is, I think many people of color and some white folks view Palestinians as people of color. And in that framework, it shifts how we think about, how we think about racial justice movements. And it impacts how we need to think about responding to domestic anti-Semitism and domestic issues as Jews. Because in what way does Israel-Palestine conversation complicate trying to build allyships with people of color in this country who view what's going on in Palestine As racism. That's my answer. Yes, please. Um,
5: I think that some of it also was from what's going on in Africa. Sure. Israel was very accepted in Africa for a long time. As a matter of fact, early on 1950s, 60s, there were a lot of Israelis in Africa that were helping. And then the Muslim population in Africa started becoming more vocal. Right. And therefore, the leadership sort of started backing up and started supporting the Muslim world. Right. So I think some of it is not as much even related to, although it's sort of transferred to that.
1: Yeah, no, I like, thank you. Um,
5: So, uh, but at the same time, we know that, you know, during... Uh, the uh, six-day war. Yep. Uh, when Israel was won and all of that, the black population in the United States, by and large, were very unhappy. Swear, the
1: That's right. That's right. That's right. It's like
5: nobody expected Israel to win, and, on the magnitude that is there. That's right. And suddenly there was Israel. That's victorious, right. Victorious, and that was the the first rip. That happened between the black and Jewish
1: community. Thank you. Perfect. Great point. It also what makes me want to add, um, and this comes from my work with the Jewish Community Relations Council, when I work with Black Muslim communities, they're often agnostic about what's going on with Israel and Palestine. They're mostly like that's just not our issue. Um, like we're black Muslims, like we're not, like we don't come with a history of engagement with the Arab world, like and so we want to talk about domestic issues. And so it also complicates things in terms of the diversity of the Muslims in the U.S. and how those dynamics and relationships parlay up to relationships with the Arab world. It's very complicated in that way. Uh, we'll go here and then here.
2: Um, I mean, the picture you you painted the Jewish community is one that I think we'd like to believe in. But the reality that I have found is that the Jewish community is not totally and right. I mean, we had a forum a number of years ago, around about three years ago, when Arizona passed uh, SB 1070, um, that I naively I helped organize the forum on what the Jewish community could do. We had a bunch of, pal- of panelists. And frankly, the racism that came out from some of <laughs> my people, my community, was yeah. horrible. Yeah. Uh, I know I don't think it was a, ma- a majority of the people there I mean, more but, of a it a very, but it was American <laughs> <laughs> but it was a very very bolder. Yeah. And you have people like Sheldon yep. and a lot of very prominent Yeah. Jewish people who well, I, I would not call people that are pursuing justice or pursuing community with the black community or of That's right. Of any kind. That's right. So how do we negotiate that or deal with that if you have a commitment to social justice within the Jewish community or should we just pursue it outside the Jewish community?
1: Both and here's why. So first I mean I and you know I do work in the Jewish philanthropic space so I spend a lot of time talking about money and this is relevant in this moment. There's a pretty um, the funding structure in the organized Jewish community that, is, has, it, that comes from beautiful roots, also has us offer a lot of community respect to the major donors and the major funders out there. And I'm talking about massive, massive amounts of money, like not at Shul right now kind of thing. And those donors tend to be largely cons- very, very conservative. And so they do help set an agenda, and part of their agenda is also often set by their perspectives on Israel. And we've seen this in terms of um, some of the funding dynamics that have gone on out there. And so the question is, how do we get progressive Jewish funders to f- just take the tension out of the community so people can focus on values and focus on work versus focusing on where the funding is coming from? So that's one piece. And I would say that, you know, I work with a range of Jewish funders out there and who have, a, who have some very, very strong perspectives about racism, Israel, like you name it, they have strong perspectives. I think there is a slow tide happening where our community leaders out there, federation leaders, funding leaders, are very interested in the topics that you just raised up. Sort of how have we created some structures in our community where we are reinforcing racism and bringing that into what should be justice work. Um, And where is that coming from and where is the education happening? And so the internal conversation is about where are we even having these kinds of conversations on a traditional, regular, structural level so that we can grapple with the hard parts of it, we're not having that many of these kinds of conversations. But then the other thing, and I will just say, I just went to the Race Forward Conference in Detroit, um, maybe the first week of November, and I was in a room with 300 philanthropic officers, and like maybe 20 were white. And the the whole theme was racial justice and philanthropy. I had never been in a space like that before, um, there were Jewish foundation people who uh, were staff of color. And the, this was the conversation, that's the conversation. So to your second point, we also need to get out of our Jewish world into just more integrated spaces where people are having these kinds of conversations, where we're grappling in ways that are safe. And what I would say is the capacity to grapple, the capacity to have complicated conversations that push our buttons a little bit is greater outside of the community where people are regularly dealing with the racism, or the sexism, or or the homophobia. There's more um, capacity to dialogue. And so I would encourage us to get out and not like have meetups or sort of um, dialogue groups, but to get into spaces where we're talking about the meaty, professional, institutional core issues in multiracial, multi-faith environments. We don't attract multiracial, multifaith energy, so we need to go into those spaces where there are other Jews.
2: But it seemed to me that and I wonder whether um, you can't do that within a congregation, a synagogue
3: mm.
1: context. I think the major that's right. That's right. That's community. right. I was having lunch with a rabbi on Wednesday, and we were having that conversation. And I think just to ha- have a brief response is. I, I think a rabbi or the senior leadership, the board, have to adopt the perspective that that's the the kind of community they want to be and that's the kind of conversations they want to have. And from there, you put the pieces in place and the physics begin to move. But a community has to make that decision first, and I think very few have in that way. Uh, We'll go here and then back. I'd like to clarify
2: on the uh, uh, the the, the, uh, demographic. Yep. He said two, 2.2% of our population is Jewish.
1: Yes, the United States.
2: Yes, 70% of those who are not Orthodox are living in mixed religious homes. How many of them actually identify as Jewish?
1: I don't have that data for you, but here's the one thing I do want to say is just because they're in mixed religion homes doesn't mean that household is not Jewish. It's not, that's not an indicator in the data. It's simply that they've married a non-Jew. And so, you know, th- I don't like that. The, I, I, and I can point you to some of the research. Um, I've raised up that point mostly to talk about in the US, because half the US will be people of color by 2042, we can, we can conjecture that when those partnerships happen, more and more will be racially diverse and Jewishly identified. Um, and, I, and I guess I, I, just, I, don't, I can follow up with you, but I don't have a, a, a particular response to specifically how many of those non-Orthodox families become, who maintain their Judaism. I don't know that.
2: It's conceivable that the 2.2% though may become less. Yes, of time.
1: yes, yes. And so the other thing I want to say though in terms of the data and the demographics is I know from, from procuring these studies we don't count all Jews in the United States. We count Jews who are formally affiliated. And so there's a whole group of Jews out there who are not counting, who are not in synagogues, who are not at federations, who are not at JCCs, who are not at day schools. And we don't have that number. So, okay. So, um, you've already asked, qu- then I'm going to go over here and then back there, please. And then if we have some time, I'll come back around. That was actually a nice segue. I thought it was refreshing how you call out the Jews who are in mixed relationships or in not affiliated with synagogues that are still part of the community because i so often go into spaces where they say we're losing jews left and right jews are dying there's no gonna be no jews in the united states in five years right because of all this so how do you respond to people who have that because i honestly think that that mentality is pushing the people who are on those edges out right and making them not want to be in the community i know it's a great question um so i mean i respond not and i i don't want i don't i I don't want to be cheeky with them but the data is the data right and so they say that and i say to them like you're lucky if 30 percent of the community is affiliated and we have to make a clear distinction between language of affiliation and language of engagement and we have to stop just valuing that which we identify as affiliated and valuing that which we identify as engaged we want jews jewishly engaged It'd be great if Jews were affiliated, but what we want is Jews who are engaged. And so we have to look at different indicators, we have to change our language, and we have to, when people say that to you, you have to push back and be like, the data just doesn't support you. Right, like, you're, like in California, I think the engagement, the, the affiliation level is like 11, 10%. And, you know, and all the Jews are at Spirit Rock meditating. Right, they're at a Buddhist retreat center meditating. And so they're, and they they do it Jewishly. I'm not there to challenge how they do their Jew. Um, I am interested in people doing their Jewish. So they're Jew and Lotus, you know. Um, Back here, and then right there, and then right here, please. And then we may have to go.
5: I'm the leader
3: in probably one of the most progressive women's Jewish organizations, NCJW. And we're struggling now... With um, the greater global and national wisdoms and the anti Semitism yep. that's existing there. And the national um, organization chose not to be affiliated um, openly with the march. The Women's March, yeah. It encouraged us to be supportive of it yeah. and have our voices heard. Yeah. So it's an example of wanting to be part of the greater whole, yet not being yeah. accommodated and necessarily welcomed.
1: Yeah, and I'll do like one second on that, but we could have a whole day on the Women's March, you and I. Um, So I just had a half hour meeting with Linda Sarsour um, talking about anti Zionism. You understand what I'm talking about? Yes. So here's what I want to say like, on our most enlightened day in relationship with people, I want us to step back and wonder to ourselves just strategically what's the role of Zionism in the Women's March? Like, just is that the best place to talk about Zionism? Is that the best place to be, bring people in relationship with Israel and what's going on with power? Like That's just a strategy question. And I work at the strategy level. I don't work on the emotional level very much. Um, and then we have to have a question of if the women's march or any progressive movement's focus is totally right on, right? Like at the intersection, if their focus is right on for all people, even if it offends some of us, right? If it's right on at the intersection and at the nexus, and we can all get around that, how do we get there? How do we get to the nexus of the work? How do we acknowledge that not only Jews who are Zionists are offended and upset and feel pushed out, but other groups do too? And so again, like we are not exceptional, right? Like our issues are not exceptional. And then like all of the dust we're kicking up about the anti-Zionism and the Women's (coughs) March, will it bring us closer together? Will it further marginalize Jews because it's getting us away from the conversation around Zionism rather than closer? And how do we navigate that? Having said all of that, when any public leader who's trying to hold progressive space says, you are not welcome because of your view, um, that's a real question about if they're being sincere in that leadership and if the entity has that ethos, there's a real question of whether or not there's space for Zionists there. I'm just not clear right now to be very honest with you. I'm just not clear. Yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've talked with all of these players. Um, uh, many of the Women's March founders are Jewish, which really complicates things. Mm-hmm. Um, it but really- Women's March was not an issue that Zionists are not
5: accepted, it was the other way. It was brought in, that Palestine Liberation Organization came in and they became, they started, you know, the, the Palestine Liberation issue became a front line. That's when the Zionists came in and said, Okay, if you're gonna do a Palestine liberation, right. we are gonna have a right. and they're,
1: when they were told, right. that's not welcome. I'm not disagreeing with you. There's like, that's, a, that's like three years, it's a layer of multi, many years of history playing out. And so, yeah, it's complicated, and what I, what I, on a very local level, when I was at the JCRC, and I'll end with this, and then we'll go over here. One of my JCRC leaders went to the Women's March. She's uh, totally civically engaged. She just like, got a city council seat in the Bay Area. She's awesome. She went to the Women's March. She's like, Ilana, I got to tell you, like, this is no place for Jewish women, right? Like, the anti-Zionism is just so real. And so I said, like, before you make, and I said, did you talk to anybody? Are you in relationship with anybody? With the Bay Area Women's March Coalition? She's like, no, I just want to thump my fist and send them, like, an angry letter and just be like, change your behavior, and I want it all to happen just like that. All right, here's an alternative. I said, go volunteer with them for six months because you don't even know anybody and you're busy judging them, right? Go in there for six months, volunteer, if, it's, if you can take it, get into relationship and then ask them about the Zionism. And then like, ask, like, if you can get in dialogue, ask them to change the outward expressions. Mm-hmm. Over the course of the year, she, you're right. I did six months, we got into relationship first, like relationship before task, we got into relationship first, and then we had a dialogue, and then I brought up my concern, and they validated it. And so on a micro level, that's how I think we can handle it, by being in relationship. We know we can't be in relationship in this big meta way right now. Um, but we can nip away at it for our regional relationships. And I think the, the supporting of regional relationships is really important. Right on. Right here.
4: So, so I don't if you have this problem in, in Bay Area. but just to involve the community relations. Uh, we find our Jewish communities pretty fractured here. Yeah. Uh, a lot of Jews who are on the right, uh, who are not getting along well with Jews on the left. Israel's the great divider, uh, but more than that, it it, it occurred, the current president's the great divider. From what happened in Charlottesville, it's astounding to me the Jews would still support him to the right.
3: Okay,
4: uh, how do you bring that community back? I, a lot of my friends are pregnant, people, and uh, how do you? at least get
1: them to find their Jewish values? Yeah, that's a beautiful question. Um, I wish I had like the answer and then we would all be... Right? I mean, the first thing I want to say is this. um, (laughs) um, It's about our leaders taking risks and modeling that leadership for their community. And there are going to be some on all of our margins who we're not going to be able to bring in or be in connection with. But as we have... Orthodox leaders, conservative leaders across the denominations, but particularly, I mean, in our Orthodox leaders, and that's where I've been spending quite a bit of my time is in modern Orthodox communities. There's not a lot of space for me like in the Haredi community or like in the Chabaz. But here's the thing. Like, the modern Orthodox leaders are thinking about this, and they're also thinking about this in relation to Torah. And one of the things that we need to do better uh, in, in a progressive environment is actually have text context. And I've heard this over and over and over again that one of the ways to build confidence and relationship with our more observant or conservative Jewish community is to have text as a basis. And to be able to talk about justice and to talk about, for some of our more conservative, taking risks for their personal values, there has to be a halakhic rationale for it. Right, like there has to be Torah to cover like why we're going to love people different than us if we've been raised to think people who are different than us, there's something off about that. And, then I might, and, and I'm thinking particularly like around LGBTQ community for example. And then you have leaders like Rabbi Mike Moskowitz or Rabbi Shmuley who are taking positions. And I know I talked, he's taking a lot of lumps too, so I know that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the leaders and particularly like our federation leaders are leaders of traditional entities have to be able to metabolize some of this information and authentically express it as real. That is not happening so much right now. And I'll tell you, when I was at Federation and we talked about these issues, they were like, it's not, um, it's not net positive. Yeah, like in a Federation environment where you're raising money, this is not a revenue generating stream. Um, the irony is, so I just got my first for the Jews of Color Field Building Initiative non-foundation gift to our initiative and it came from a federation donor advised fund. And for anybody who understands that space, it's about the most traditional funding vehicle from the Jewish world you could ever use. And justice is is a, a net revenue generating concept. We have to bring in, to some of the earlier questions, more diverse community members into our traditional organizations to make that relationship happen in that case, it was just it literally their, their, their intimacy was because they were under 50. And I don't mean that, but like our community has a lot of elders in it. And if we can bring in those who are under 50, under 40 in traditional spaces, they bring those values with them and then they push to the top. And so that's the other thing is, we, like, while we want to affirm our community who's affiliated and not engaged, I mean, who's engaged but not affiliated, those who are affiliated can create a level of gravitas and engagement and pressure, if you will, that's actually really healthy for the institutional change. We're going to end here, I think, because I think we're supposed to end at 8.15, and I'm not totally sure. A30. Uh, well, great, we'll keep going.
3: Okay, so two points. 1st your point. Your <laughs> Every generation of Jews has felt that they are worried about being the last. Probably the reason why we're still going. (laughs) Right. And and the second is, I am very optimistic because I think the more grandparents who have grandchildren of color, the more they will see that my Chinese uh, adopted granddaughter or my uh, son who married a black woman as totally and, and those are my grandchildren the more that that happens and it's happening more and more that's right
1: it may be slow but that's i see where our optimism about the future comes. i love that when i um i spoke at uh, there's jewish funders network which is like the network entity of the largest jewish foundations and philanthropies and philanthropists around the globe and i had an opportunity to do a discussion around diversity and justice themes with a jewish funders network audience Everyone in the room is white, except for me. There's about 120 major donors and philanthropies in the room. We were having this whole discussion, and I said, I want to just ask you this question. How many of you have people of color in your families? Half the hands in the room went up. Of what you would think are like the most kind of, and you're not surprised.
3: Loving versus Virginia, that outlawed miscegenation, is during most of our life. That's right,
1: that's right, that's right, that's right. And so the thing is, is when you have a conversation with somebody in the community, I think you will often find that somewhere in there are people of color in these families. I've been in foundation, like billion dollar Jewish foundation CEO offices. They have pictures of their black grandkids, like on the shelves, or their Latino grandkids on the shelves, or their Asian grandkids on the shelves
3: with their LGBTQ. That's right,
1: that's right. Image. But they put that picture on the shelf 10 years ago. Right, <laughs> like that, that, they came out about that 10 years ago. Um, not every community leader is comfortable, which is the other thing I wanna say, about having racial diversity in their family. And I just wanna raise that up. Um, the gentleman over here talked about the racism in the, in the, inside the Jewish community. Many of our Jewish communal leaders are struggling with their peers and worries of perception about having people of color in their families. And we may think that's, cha- you know, whatever your feelings are about that, it's just real. And we need to acknowledge that, like, our leaders are struggling around racism in our community because they know how racist some of the Jewish community can be. I mean, there is the, therein lies the irony of the whole thing. Um, but yeah, like, about ha- like at least half raised their hand every time I asked that question. Yeah, it was amazing. Um, let me just make sure everybody who's wanted to, I appreciate your indulgence. Okay, go ahead.
2: So, um, at one point during your presentation, you said the first Jews who came to the United States were not white. Now, are you talking about Sephardic?
1: No, I appreciate you. Well, like, in the fifteen and 1600s, they often were Sephardic. Yeah. I, I was speaking specifically about Eastern European Jews and European Jews who came to the U.S. before U.S. labeled those Europeans as white. And so, there was another category Um, and it was, you know, around 1930s, there were some decisions that were made in response to what was going on in Europe. Um, There was actually a decision made in the United States around helping respond to domestic anti-Semitism because it made the United States look better than Europe, who was not responding to anti-Semitism at the time. Um, So when when I said that, I was thinking, I was speaking specifically about European Jews who came to the U.S. and were not labeled as white by the U.S. at that time. You all could debate that. all I mean, I... It is a reality. It was, it was a reality. That's it right. Is.
4: We have quotas in, in
1: colleges. Right. quotas
4: in the number
2: of... That's downs. right. But that no that's the color of the skin. But they were treated the that's same exactly. as an African-American that... or a woman
4: who was in effect, not white. Okay. okay. Now, to... now you understand. I think that's why I think that's an, a really powerful um, comparative statement.
2: Well, I took you literally really, and I couldn't... Okay, so right. I, my follow-up question has to do with the numbers. I, you also said 11, mm. 11 to 34% yep. are people in, of the Jewish community yep. are people of color. Yep. And I understand the hand-raising and all that, but when I look at our congregation That's right. ...I belong to, I can't find one-tenth of one you know? percent.
1: Okay, so then there's also regional regional variations, and so that's just real. So the the cumulative numbers across the country... Uh, Brandeis Steinhardt Social Research Institute in 2013, 11%. I think it's 11.6%. And then Bechola Shon, which is an organization that works on Jewish diversity. In 2002, 2003, they put out a number of about 20%. But I will just say, as a social scientist, I I don't love their data. And if I break apart all their chunks of data, what I see in there is maybe like 10% traditional US categories of people of color and then Mizrahi and Sephardi, um, and some other ethnic communities and that other ten percent. And then some of the regional recent data is as much as thirty four percent, but I'm not sure how much I trust that data either. And that's why we're doing a new study. Yeah. yeah. And it'll be out around April fifteenth. So and I hope they come back to town and talk about it. Yeah, sure, let's right, talk.
4: The number we banter around because nobody knows is you know, there's only 10% of the population. Right. Affiliation right. How are you going to get the other 90% if you're ever going to do a really accurate
1: uh, study? Well, the way how I, uh, yeah, no, how am I going to do it personally? So, no, no, I appreciate your question. So, first of all, um, all of the studies that have been done have been meta studies. And so, those are studies that pull current data and analyze data that's currently available versus doing a traditional census, okay? And so we are not doing a traditional census and no one has done a traditional census. Um, The group that I'm working with and I I, I just, like the contracts are getting signed literally right now and so I can't um, speak publicly about the university who will do it for us but it's a very, very well-regarded university. Um, They hired for my team somebody who specializes in hidden populations and acknowledging that the traditional data sources at best will recreate the current data um, they have put someone on my team who is literally going out to, like, the racial justice spaces, the grassroots spaces, the non-traditional spaces where we know other Jews are um, and looking at those data sets as well. And so, you know, it'll be the best cut we can do, but until we do a proper census, um, you know, it'll be as good as that metadata is. Is there,
5: is there going to be a Jewish census that has come out, like,
1: there was one in 2013, Pew did one, and so that's the, that's the most recent one, and they'll probably do another one in 2023 is my guess. Hopefully every, because they, they um, pattern right after the census years. Yeah, yeah. Bravo. Thank you all. It's so nice that you came tonight, thank you.